Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Good evening, Susan. How, How are you, you doing? It? <clears throat> oh, I'm oh, doing good. Enjoying the uh, the still warmish weather. We have yet to have what we call a killing frost. We've had, you know, those nights of 33, 34 where you don't want to have your basil out. But n- not the not the frost that just level the poke. Yeah, yeah, that's the same out here. We've it's similar. Weather, it sounds like we have like a crazy inversion happening right now, where it's there's all this pressure, you know, and it just and we live in the valley, so it's very stagnant here right now, and uh, the air quality is not that great. So, 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm, too bad. Sorry. Yeah. Smoke? It's all good. Fires? Make or it... just general stuff? Yesterday I felt like it was smoky, but um, I looked it up and there were no fires in the area. And I was like, I mean, it's not, I don't think California fires would come all the way up here from where they're at, but... Yeah, it seemed like something like that. But right, because they're be down kind of... in the L.A. area, right? Those fires. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But when they were in Northern California last year, we did get quite a bit of that up in up in the valley here. Right, because that's really close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Meanwhile, here in the Catskills, the fire towers have been abandoned because we so rarely have fires anymore. That's amazing. Right. <laughs> but it's probably really good out there because it's so heavily populated. In a lot of the areas we have fires down here, there's not, you know, it's uh, not a lot of people around, with the exception of that campfire and uh, in Ojai and stuff last year right. down in California. You know, New York State does it kind of an interesting way. We take mm-hmm. half the entire population of the state and make them live on a few islands called New York City. Mm. The rest of us, have the rest of the entire state, which is huge, and the population density is far less than your states out there, mm. in just upstate New York, in the part that isn't the city. Population density is very spread out. Interesting, huh? It is interesting. I, when I was out on the East Coast, I always felt like there, like the the plots of land, there wasn't like a whole lot of like open land. There's a lot of private property out there, is what it felt like. And what state were you in? When I was in New York or Connecticut or uh, Massachusetts. Connecticut for sure. Any- what part of yeah. New York were you in? Were you in upstate New York? I mean, just when I came out to your place, I didn't go up much further than right, the right, right. That's what I'm saying is when you get up into the farmland, like the average farm size in New York State is a couple of hundred acres. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I would love we're, to come you out know, there. We're just a hundred miles from the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, in traveling city. all across North America, the only place that I was regularly chased off land and not allowed to camp was in California. Where it appears that every square huh. inch is up. There's over six million acres of public land in New York State where anyone can stay. Oh wow, that's cool. That's good to know. We'll come out there again. My 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 partner's brother lives up there with his family, and I've been talking about coming out there to see you and and checking out his place and stuff. So that's fun. we'll see when that happens. Yeah. But we have uh we actually have a lot of people on the line, but not we only have two people that have raised their hand. So I just wanted to tell the callers that they need to do that because a bunch of these callers have been on the line for a while. So I'd imagine that they have questions. So press one. And at nine o'clock, Ariella Moon is going to be with us. She's a priestess of Avalon, an initiated Wiccan priestess, a Reiki master. And a shamanic healer who has led rituals inside Stonehenge, Salisbury, England, and at the Kalanish Stones in the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. It's going to be a fun time talking to 
Clariella Moon. I hope you stay with us or that you come back to hear her. Mm-hmm. Shall we get started then with just, our... Yeah, can I just ask you a quick question about... Um, so I, I just sparked this thing when because I'm getting a I'm getting my Reiki master right now and we're going through the chakras and I was just and we're at the, the second chakra and I was wondering um, if I remember you talking about like how you differentiate like the the root chakra and the the sacral chakra you you see it a little bit differently and I was just gonna I just want to hear what you had to say about that again. It became very clear to me as I studied chakras that the chakras were basically viewed from a male-centric vision. And that um, especially with the root chakra and the um, belly chakra, that um, physically men and women are very, very different in those areas. I have mm-hmm. never met any woman whose sexuality is in her belly chakra. It's in her root chakra. Yeah, that's what I've been feeling. And I had like so much coming up for me when we were like concentrating on the, the root chakra. And then, you know, everybody's like talking about sexual trauma and stuff as we're coming into this, the belly chakra. But I felt like uh, so much more of it is like this foundational, like uh, I just had some PTSD come up like during that time like when I was really focusing on it and doing lots of meditations and stuff with it and I was like it felt like it was all so condensed there and then I was like what was Susan saying about this like I know that it's really important so <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah because I was totally like I can yeah. understand why for men sexuality wouldn't be at the root impulse but would be more up in the belly I can understand that but it's not that way for women Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. And, and of course, in the, our belly chakra, there. we have the uterus. Mhm. An organ that men don't have. They have the prostate, which is a failed uterus. It's a uterus that just couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, because of X, Y, and men's cells doesn't allow the uterus, which they start off with. All fetuses start out with female uh, organs. But um, if the uterus doesn't get enough estrogen, it just fails and becomes a prostate gland. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to give a very, very different character to the belly chakra. Because there's a lot that goes on for a woman in her belly, and that doesn't go on for a man in his belly. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly okay to learn any kinds of systems. There's lots and lots of systems. And it's certainly okay to be a master. But, you know, if you're a master, you have mastery. And if you're a mistress, you have... Mystery, right. (laughs) So I never like to see any woman be a master. Because, once again, I think it's selling out Mm -hmm. ourselves as women. And saying that somehow a woman isn't good enough. She has to be a master to be good enough. Right. So what do you and I don't call like the whole pour over thing of master. I just, you know, I, don't, you? I, I do not. I, I personally tend to shy away from anybody who's a master anything, just personally. 
And yeah, that was really yeah, reinforced for me when I had somebody here who was a master gardener. And mm-hmm. it was spring. And she said, what can I do? And I said, well, I have some cabbage plants. Would you plant them out? And I went out after she had done them. And I have no soil here. I have solid rock and broken rock. So I make beds and fill them with compost. So it's very, very light. And she had taken the cabbage plants, made little mounds, little breasts, and put the cabbage plants right at the tip of the little moundy breasties and put little ditches around them. And I'm like, you know, they were almost half dead by the time I got out there, like 10 minutes after she planted them. What are you doing? She says, well, where I became a master gardener, all the soils are clay, and you have to bring the plants up like this so the roots rot. I'm like, well, I thought you were a master gardener. She says, oh, no, I'm only a master gardener for my area. I don't know about gardening anywhere else. Hmm. So, it's a, it, you know, it's kind of like natural, right? It's a meaningless right. So those are my thoughts about master and mastery and being a master and learning somebody else's, uh, the way somebody else thinks the chakras operate. Right. And so what would you, like, that if Susan ruled the world, that the way that she would educate people is that she would, you know, especially children, is that she would say, ask them the big questions, you know, why are we here? What's the point of life? Really big questions. And we talk about those for a mm-hmm. while, and we, you know, and we let the individual students come up with their own answers, and then we would read what other people had to say about it. Because hmm. the way it's done now, people are given all these other people's opinion, and then, then they're asked, what's your opinion? Well, who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I actually re- remember that about your method of teaching, some of those poignant questions you would ask for me to reflect on and yeah. Right. And then much we can see what other said about it. But yeah. first, uh, first find out what's going on with you because you you want to have the sense about yourself that you can trust yourself. Mhm. What would you suggest somebody that is getting a Reiki master? What would you suggest they would uh, then refer to it as? The Reiki certification. Well, I guess or? we would just have to go back altogether because I would never suggest that anybody get a Reiki anything. Really? This is universal healing energy and you're paying for it? Well, just to learn the symbols and the, yeah, yeah, because I didn't oh, know before. I didn't know how to. You don't need those yeah, symbols. To, you absolutely do not no? need those. No, of course not. They're useless. Oh, so when you say Reiki, what are you, re- what are you referring to? I said I would never have anybody get involved with any kind of Reiki, didn't I? I thought you said that when you, like with your cat, you said that she uh, healed. You're asking me what I think. I I didn't do it. Oh, okay. I believe that every human being has the ability to connect with the energy of the earth and the energy of the breath. And the energy that is all around us. And that if we choose to focus our attention on those energies, and if we choose to work with those energies for healing, that that is done. 
And that it's literally as simple as that. Rigmarole is rigmarole. Yeah, for me, I guess it's a very, I mean, it's, it is very useful with the symbols because I can, I can drop in and like, you know, go through and get into the, the energy centers of the body. And then I, it's like all the, the visionary stuff. And then I just use that as like a tool to get in there. And then it's like, it just like starts, the energy starts pouring in and I, all of this other stuff comes in that, you know, like that's outside of that. I don't really it's just a tool to get into like the the flow of energy, I guess. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's helpful. It's helpful for me. So. Mhm. It's it's it kind of gives. But what I'm you, saying it's is, like it's medicine. not necessary. Mhm. Yeah, I could see that it's not necessary, but. Right. Every time. Every time I lead the meditation at Tai Chi. Right, and I direct us to focus on the energy in our hands, and I say, make a, make a bookmark, make a way to get back here, put a handle on this, make some way to get back to this sensation of what energy feels like in your hands so that you can instantly go here. And each and every mm-hmm. person can do that. Yeah. Now, of course, I come from a generation that is really, you know, all do-it-yourself, you know, from Bob Dylan all the way through. We wrote our own songs. We wrote our own lyrics. We wrote our own music. You know, we grew our own sheep. We spun our own wool. We do it. We do it for ourselves. We do the whole thing. So taking somebody else's symbols to me is just like, uh Mm-hmm. I want to spend enough time in those chakras, understanding those chakras enough to have my own symbology. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's yeah. why I that's why I can say to you, this is what I know about the root chakra. I'm not just repeating what I've read in books, and believe me, I've read all the books. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you my actual experience. And so to me, that's far more valuable than anything I can read in a book. Yeah, because and I, I, I understand I that so everybody who writes a book or has a system has what one of my teachers called hobby horses. Mm-hmm. Right, cherish thoughts that they're not going to give up about way, the way the world is. Right, and yeah, and for me and for most of my life, I have noticed that many of those cherished thoughts come from a male perspective and do not adequately express a woman's experience of, mm-hmm. of life, of body, of energy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's rather like a teenager again and trying to make yourself fit, otherwise you're like wrong, 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 you know? Right, um, yeah. Most of us get through it discovering we're right, 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 and you don't have to fit anything. Mm-hmm. But it's a common thing. You know, it's not just in Reiki. It's, you know, it's all throughout. Right? And uh, and it has to do with, you remember, oh, gosh, some months ago I said that I was uh, thinking about people who are trainable and people who are teachable. Mm-hmm. People who are trainable can be trained to do the same thing over and over again, and that's why we have Reiki. 
for people who are not teachable. Hmm. Because hey, people, yeah. who, people who are teachable can not only learn the pattern, they can learn how to respond when there's something different in the pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a non-stop, like, learning curve, you know? <laughs> so I'm I'm happy that uh, I got the opportunity to ask you that. Thank you. And You're welcome. I I will keep working with the energies and see see where it takes me. Good. Great. All right. Well, let's go to our first caller, and this caller is coming from a private number. Hi, Susan. Thank you, guys, for that amazing talk just now. What did um, you just say? I said thank you for that amazing talk just now about chakras and just this last part. I feel Wonderful. like I could... For some reason, I thought you said thank you, guys. I Oh, and I shouldn't. That's terrible. S- slap my face. You should hang up on me. I'm so sorry I said that. It was just playful and right. stupid. Plain All right. Stupid. All right. Don't let it happen again. So what do you want to ask tonight? Again, I'm not allowed to call you anymore. But, um, Susan, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit woozy. not my rule, it's yours. (laughs) I love you. Um, I only have two questions. Actually, I have three, but last one's not important, so we just want to try to get through the first. I'm the shrinking teratoma girl, and I'm managing, I feel like I'm getting the feel of what to take when, like playing with the skull cap and, California poppy at night, but and I and I I finally did yoga again, so that was a big a big um, a step in the right direction. My problem, I think I told you before, it takes me a long time to eliminate in the morning. My question is, and I I am taking a dropper full of yellow dock as soon as I get up when I know that's the time to poop, so that it helps me. Um, but I still feel constipated, and yes, I'm I'm having salads, maybe not enough. My question is. I, I see these products, and I know they're garbage because of what's in them, but like Metamucil things, um, I was wondering how you felt about my taking just real psyllium. And then I looked at, at it online, and it said it swells. And I think one of my problems is I can't eliminate because of all the soreness and the space that things are taking up in my belly. So I didn't want to, like, swell my colon up and then really have a problem. And anyway, thank you. Yes, psyllium seed is considered a bulk-producing laxative. Mm. Like chia seed, it can absorb many, many times its own weight in water. Oh, boy, that could create a blockage. It could indeed if you do not either soak it overnight before you consume it or drink it with lots and lots of fluid. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it it turned me off. I am starting to suspect that this can that you have of being constipated um, is not from being constipated. Okay. That it's a sensation of stuff in your intestines, and you just characterized for me that your intestines feel overfull and that there's things in there. Again, remembering no one has ever died or come to any harm at all from constipation. Right. Diarrhea, diarrhea is one of the biggest killers on this planet. Constipation cannot kill. Right. But, Susan, there's just another variable on this. Um, I don't expect you to remember me saying this. But I have to get up 
at least once a night to urinate, which I've never done before. And what makes me get up is, I mean, it's a gripping, like, it's, you gave me some antispasmodic ideas, but this is like just a grip of, oh, my God, am I okay? Like, am I going to be able to get up? And then I get up and pee and comes out slow and everything's cool. And then in the morning, it's the same thing with the pooping. And you're right, I might be putting mental energy into it, but there's a very severe pain that happens with this. And when I pass stool, right before it passes, I have severe pain, and then it eases up. I'm like kind of getting used to how to deal with it in a way. And and the only thing, I mean, if I have an Advil like before I poop, which I usually don't, that seems to help a little. So I think it's some of it's real pain, and I don't know. That well, I think it's all real pain. Mm. Okay. And the intestines have nerve endings. You're feeling that. They have pressure sensors. You're feeling that. Right. And when your guts are moving, you're going to feel that, and it feels painful to you. Right. Now, your guts are always moving a little bit. Right. But, but you know, the, a, a big movement in your gut, is you are certainly going to feel that. Right. And... I know people who, because they felt that, decided that what they were going to do was not eat. Oh no, not I'm, I'm actually. And I do little, not. Think that's the best. No, choice. I'm not very hungry though, but I'm forcing myself to like have my four meals a day. Mhm, mhm. They're not big, but they're healthy and they're you know they're they're okay. And I notice if I don't do that, like God forbid something goes wrong. Thank God for my nourishing herbal infusions. Of course, they're always in the car with me with a little ice pack. But, you know, it gets worse. Um, Susan, I just want to ask you one more thing that's kind of important, and it's this Advil use. It's, I, have, I mean, I've had teeth pulled and been told to take Advil, and I have refused, and a lot of that comes from information from you and just knowing what, what it is um, and how it destroys you. And, I mean, it's the only thing really keeping me on my feet, having one either at night and one in the morning. I mean, it basically comes out to two a day. But it's, I bought a 50 thing, and I used it up in, in a month, and that scared me because I've never even used it like that. I'm wondering, may I take something or, or drink another herbal infusion that might counteract its negative effects? Because I feel like it's getting less as long as I figure out how to do my skull cap and CBD, but uh-huh. I still need it sometimes or else I can't go teach or, you know, or, or have a good sort of four good hours of sleep. So, mm-hmm. and I think it's okay um, to take it better than so being in pain, right? There's two questions here. One's a question that I have. There are five nourishing herbal infusions that I like people to rotate through. Yep. Is that what you're doing? Yes, and and I'm even okay because now you, you made me very consistent is there about their another order. nourishing herbal infusion. So it made me think. Wait, is she just drinking one of them? And none of the nourishing herbal infusions are specific against. Pain, but both comfrey and linden are anti-inflammatory. Okay. And they are especially anti-inflammatory if you do a rebrew with them. Okay. Because the anti-inflammatory parts come out better in cold water. So you make your regular infusion and then right. 
with the linden, with the comfrey, but not with the others. You strain off the liquid, but don't squeeze the herb. And put the herb into a saucepan. Uh-huh. And if you've, if you've made a quart of infusion, add two cups of cold water to the herb, the linden, or the comfrey in the saucepan. Mm-hmm. Already oh. some liquid in it because you haven't squeezed it, and that's okay. And bring that up to a boil, put a lid on it, turn the fire off, and let it steep for about four hours. And okay. when you squeeze that, strain that and squeeze that, you'll see how slippery and slimy it is. Uh, yes. Okay. And that will it that very much helps what's going on in the guts. Uh-huh. And so you would to in addition to your normal nourishing herbal infusion regimen. Or you do that the day you're doing one of those fellas. They're not fellas. Oh They're God, not, I did I, it. I, as it came out of my mouth, I almost choked, right, and okay. I was like, "Maybe she won't notice." It is. You make a quart of comfrey infusion. Yes. Like my normal comfrey day is what I'm asking. Your normal comfrey day. You make a quart of comfrey infusion the night I, before. Yes. Yes, and then do this. This and when you strain it in the morning, then you are going to leave the plant material unsqueezed. Yes. And you're going to put that wet plant material in a saucepan. Mm-hmm. Two cups of cold water and bring it up to a boil. I am not yeah. talking about some other month, some other week, some other day. I am talking about right then, yes? Right. I just didn't know if I should do that in, in addition straining to your one infusion, of my... Yes. Yes. So I just drink what's you in the... You have that plant material. You put it in a saucepan with two cups of water, bring it to a boil, yes. lid yes. on it, and the fire off, let it steep for four hours, strain it. You can mix it with the other infusion if you haven't drunk it all yet. You can drink it separately. Either way is fine. Okay. It's and part of that day's infusion, and if six cups is too much to drink in that day, it's okay to carry some of it over till the next day. Oh, I can drink that six cups. And Susan, do you have a name for that system of... Not straining and then putting it in the pot with the two cups of water. A rebrew. A rebrew. Okay, so I want to ask. I'll ask you the right thing next time. Okay, a rebrew. Okay. Thank. You. And that's, that's only with linden and comfrey because they contain mucilages. Like psyllium seed contains a mucilage. A mucilage ah. is good for the intestines. Right. But they're not going to swell up in there like that stuff could. Right. Perfect. No, oh, I can't wait to tell my mom about that, too, because she's taking that Metamucil all the time, and that's, she thinks she's addicted so to it. So far as I know, Metamucil is psyllium. Yes, but it's got um, it's got a bunch of chemicals in it, and also oh, not, got it. nine grams of sugar, so who needs that? <laughs> I mean, it's fine if you're having it. Oh, some so other it's way. not just it's not just plant, uh, psyllium seed. It's got a whole bunch. Oh, of metamucilium plus other things. But I realized that was active, so that's why I asked you, should I just buy that and try to take it? But thank you for clarifying that. And you've you been, been harvesting plantain seed over the past couple of weeks, and that's you know, plantago magus mm-hmm. is what grows around us, and the metamucil is based on plantago psyllium. It's, it's plantain seed. Wow. I wish that I, the jar of oil I have was something I could drink. Okay. But that's the leaf, not the seed. You didn't make uh-huh. oil of the seeds, right? You made oil of the leaves. I made oil of the leaf, and I'd make a tincture of the seeds. No. Oh. You'd use the seeds in cooking. 
Oh, I eat them. I see. Okay. I don't have to cook them. I just put them in the soup or something. Yeah, you have to cook them. Okay. So I they go in, in with pain or at the, of the soup, but not just, you know, at the end of the soup. Or, right. or use them to soak them overnight in cold water, and they'll swell up and make this gel-like mass, which you can take as a laxative. Oh, I have to do that. Mm-hmm. I prefer just I'm to throw sure them in. But that's okay. And as I said, we're harvesting them this week. This is a good time to harvest plantain seed. I'm close by to you. My, I was calling you from my computer, but I'm very close to you, so I have to look. Um, and Susan, any tips on the Advil, um, like counteracting something? I don't think that the amount you're taking is going to be a problem. Oh, I really you. don't. You're really relieving me. Because it's I really it. important for you to have some time when you are pain-free. Thank and I think that using that to get some pain-free time is an excellent choice. That's what it's there for. You know, okay. sometimes people get the sense that if we're going to um, limit our use of certain things, that that somehow becomes like this religious commitment. Yes. And I'm not sure what that furthers. I'm not sure what good that does. You need some Advil to be able to live your life, please take it. And I don't want surgery, and I'm just hoping this isn't, like, going going to go on for a year, but I'll have to figure out how to make it work if it does. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And there are people in chronic pain from arthritis who take yes. a lot more than that. Yes. And take nervous. it for years. So why don't you right now set yourself a time limit? I don't want to take this amount for more than six months. Oh, okay. Well, I actually tried to paper. And ease within your time limit. Use it as you will within your time limit. When you get closer to the end of your time limit, start to see about switching off if you still need a pain relief to something else. Mm-hmm. Right. Or to cutting down. Right. But you're in pain. You don't also want to be mean to yourself. Right. And thank you for teaching me that because I, 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 can, I would tell someone else to do that, but I don't know how to receive that. So I'm sorry if I keep – if no, I call no you – No apology needed. I think you're doing great. Well, if I still don't get it in six months, somebody <laughs> else will – Hey, I'm still taking singing lessons 25 years later. It's okay. You know, some of us are slow learners. Well, you know I am because you repeated the instructions for the rebrew. <laughs> well, somebody else needed them too. Thank That's you right. so much, my my empowering teacher. That's and, what I and, my teacher. I say, don't despair. I will eventually get it. <laughs> oh gosh! Green blessings to you, my Green friend. Green blessings, guys. All right, nobody else has their hand raised at this time. Oh, my gosh. You have a question. I know. Please press 1 to ask your question. Um, I just uh, got into some of the questions here that were written in, and um, this one came in last week. I'm not sure if it's too late to for her, but we'll go for it. She says, hi, Susan. My name is... Okay, I know you're probably too busy to answer my question, but I thought I would try. I had a miscarriage six weeks ago. 
The bleeding was very heavy for the first couple of days, and I ended up fainting from loss of blood. Since then, the bleeding has been light to medium, but it is still continuing six weeks later. I'm scheduled to go in to get an ultrasound and a blood test soon to find out if it's an incomplete miscarriage, which I think my midwife suspects. My question is, if this is an incomplete miscarriage, should I get the recommended DNC procedure or use the drugs that they recommend to bring on contractions? Or should I try using some herbs first to see if that can clear out the uterus? I had really hoped to avoid any surgeries or medications. I haven't had a chance to buy your book, but I have seen some mention of black and blue cohosh being used in order to attempt to clear out the uterus. I'm definitely willing to give that a try, but I don't want to do anything risky since I don't know that much about it. If you have any thoughts on what's going on with me, please let me know. I'd be so happy to hear from you. Thank you so much. Okay, let's start here. The uterus, the unpregnant uterus, is a little bit smaller than your fist, usually about the size of a lemon. It is lined on the inside with tissues called endometrial tissues. The uterus itself is muscle. The endometrial tissue is blood-filled tissue, and it is capable of growing. Each month, the endometrial tissue, under the influence of hormones, grows thicker and thicker with the expectation that a fertilized egg might become implanted in it. If, after an appropriate amount of time, that has not occurred and no fertilized egg has come into the uterus to be implanted, uh, then the hormone signals that would say that has happened are not there, and the endometrium gives up. The uterine muscle then begins to contract. And the contraction of the uterine muscle causes the endometrial tissue to slough off from the inside of the uterus and to come out as menstrual blood. If the endometrium does receive a fertilized egg, then it continues to grow thicker and thicker and eventually a placenta is formed. So in the uterus, we now have a fetus and a placenta. You didn't mention when you miscarried. In other words, how far along in the pregnancy were you? The most common miscarriage point is within the first 8 to 13 weeks of the pregnancy. It's estimated that about a third of all pregnancies end in a spontaneous miscarriage. The older we get, the more likely this is to happen because the genetic material will be um, less and less strong and less and less worth the body putting in the huge amount of effort that it has to put in to make a baby. So let's say, just for the sake of saying that you are at the 10-week mark in your pregnancy, at which point a fetus would be developed, and you can go 
you know, to books or online and look and see what that would look like at the point at which you miscarried. This will give you a very clear visual of what was happening in your uterus. You probably know that I never use the word clean to refer to anything, and I certainly would never clean out a uterus. Rather, sounds like cleaning a toilet bowl, doesn't it? Oh, dear, what a bad image. So there's nothing dirty about your uterus, and it doesn't need to be cleaned out. I'm alarmed that you have waited this long and that you are basically putting your health and your life in the hands of other people, and you have taken no move whatsoever to take care of yourself in the past six weeks, or perhaps you have, but you haven't mentioned it. I certainly give you that room, but it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like you've started drinking nettle infusion to build your blood back up. Um, No one should get that faint from blood loss Uh, if they're drinking nettle infusion. I've had uh, past apprentices who've lost more than a quart of blood at a birth and had no dizziness or problem at all because they'd been drinking their nettle infusion. So please, start drinking your nettle infusion now if you're not drinking it and the other infusions as well, but uh, at least several quarts of nettle a week. Um, It's always wise when there's been a miscarriage to use some herbs that are stringent and that help the uterus contract red raspberry leaf is a big favorite of midwives. They will often brew up some uh, red raspberry leaf tea to have there um, so that at the close of the birth and after the placenta has been uh, delivered that mom gets some raspberry tea to help. Um, What we say is to close down the uterus, not to clean it out, but to close it down. I know men like to clean out the uterus, but what do you suppose they'd say if we said we're going to clean out your prostate, huh? I don't think they'd like that very much at all. So what we want to do is to close it down because the uterus has expanded, right? Remember, it started out the size of your fist or lemon, but now there's other things in there. There's a fetus in there. There's a placenta in there, and so the uterus has gotten big. And if that uterine muscle is not well-toned, if it's flaccid, then it's not going to be able to come back to its normal size. And that would cause extended bleeding because those tissues need to shrink down to stop the bleeding. So you could ask yourself what you know would be the best way to get your uterus to shrink down. Obviously, you could simply think about it. You could think about your uterus shrinking down, closing down. All right. Um, I don't know if it's true of you, but... For quite a few women who miscarry, letting the uterus remain kind of open and kind of oozy and bleedy is a way for them to express their grief. It's very difficult in our culture to grieve for a miscarriage. You're supposed to have a kind of stiff upper lip and just go on and get pregnant again and not really talk about the miscarriage. But you quite possibly had a lot of hopes and plans involved in that baby that you were carrying, and I'm sure that it was a baby to you. And um, it's dead. It died. And that's a real grief. And it can be very hard in most parts of American culture to um, express that grief. So having your uterus on the open side and just bleeding is a way to 
to literally bleed. Grieving is bleeding, right? So you might find that if you were to actually grieve and to take some time to really grieve what has happened, that that might slow your bleeding down and help your uterus to close up. That astringence like a witch hazel sitz bath or drinking um, red raspberry leaf tea or comfrey leaf infusion, all of these things help to close down the uterus, helping the uterus to expel any placenta or any fetal tissues. In general, an incomplete miscarriage is a miscarriage that is an induced miscarriage. From what you wrote in your letter, I believe that this is a natural miscarriage, and so technically it's not really possible for it to be incomplete. But it's possible for your uterus not to be strong enough to close down and to push the last of this stuff out of there. Do you need to get a DNC? You don't need to. Do you want to get a DNC? I don't know. You're not on the phone with me. It's one of the reasons why it's difficult to to talk to you. Um, when you email in and easier to talk to you when you're right there so that I can get a sense of what it is that you want and how you want to approach this. I hope this information has been of some use to you. Blue cohosh and black cohosh are plants that are not in the least bit related. Cohosh means root, just as St. Jones wort and mother wort and other warts are not related. Wort is simply a word that means weed and burdock and yellow dock and heel dock and elf dock are not related. Dock is a word that means big leaf. Cohosh, blue cohosh and black cohosh are not related and they have opposite effects. Blue cohosh contains oxytocin. It is a uterine contractor. It will often cause severe tonic contractions that are quite painful. Black cohosh is an antispasmodic. It is often added to the blue cohosh to counter blue cohosh's tendency to cause uterine cramping. Green blessing. All right. Thank you, Susan. And we had a few people queue up with questions. The first caller is coming from the 248 area code. Okie doke. All right. Can you hear me? Again. Oh, hi. Thank you. Hi. I have a question. I'm calling from Michigan. About three and a half years ago, I got tinnitus in my ear. And three years later, it's gotten a lot worse. And I just had an MRI that says I have a parotid gland tumor. And they want to do surgery. And... um, I want to know how I can shrink it without having them cut my face open. There's pressure behind my eye, my nose, and my jaw on the left side, and it's worse after I eat. How big is the tumor at this point? It's one inch by half inch. So not huge, but pretty big yes there one of the main differences between surgery and other ways of approaching this is that surgery happens fast right 
and other ways of approaching it don't. Okay. So I envision two triangles. The surgery triangle is a triangle with a little point up top, and that's how long it takes to get rid of the tumor. Wham! It's done. And then the base of the triangle is very large, and that's how long it takes to heal after the surgery. Okay. And the other triangle is upside down to that. The base is up, and that's how long it takes alternative techniques to shrink the tumor. And the point is down, and that's how long it takes to heal from the side effects of doing the techniques, the other techniques, which is basically no healing time at all. Okay. So, in fact, you're going to spend about the same amount of time. But if you do surgery, that amount of time will be spent in healing from the effects of the surgery. And if you do it alternatively, you won't have to heal from the effects of that, but it will take a long time. And it might be, if this tumor is growing, that you don't have that time. I don't really know. It has gotten worse over three years. It has. And tumors tend to grow by doubling. Okay. That sounds kind of innocuous, like one becomes two, and two becomes four, and four becomes eight, eight becomes 16, 16 becomes 32, and 32 becomes 64. But let's make that million. One million becomes two million, becomes four million, becomes eight million, becomes 16 million, becomes 32 million, becomes 64 million. Once you get a tumor up into those upper reaches of doubling, it can literally double in size fast. I don't know what the doubling rate of your tumor is. Okay. So I can't really tell you how much time you have. Mm-hmm. The surgeons and the radiation specialists and the chemo therapeutic specialists have studies that they can refer to because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of money in that industry. And so they have studies and they can say people who've had the surgery, this many of them got well, this many of them died, and these are the side effects. I cannot tell you that about any alternative way of shrinking the tumor. Okay. So in a way, um, the surgery is kind of a sure bet, although it's a sure bet that you'll be in pain, a sure bet that you'll have to heal from it. Those are parts of the sure bet. Whereas alternatively, it's Anybody's guess. And it may or may not be successful. And there's certainly a possibility for that with this surgery, too. Right. That's what they told me. I, I would, it will probably be some facial paralysis or nerve damage. Yeah. It's pretty hard for them to cut without cutting some nerves. So I think that one of the best ways to proceed is to make a time limit for yourself. Okay. And to say, I'm going to work at home with seeing if I can shrink or remove this tumor for the next X amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that can be any amount of time you choose for it to be. But you do need to set a hard and definite time limit. Now, okay. the fact that you have a hard and definite time limit does not mean if your tumor suddenly gets a lot bigger that you can't say, woo! I, I, I don't have a year to wait. I need to do something now. Mm-hmm. 
so you're always, even when you have a time limit, you're always able to say, wow, this time limit is, you know, not ad- adequate to what's actually going on, and I need to change and go ahead and do something else. But having a time limit gives you a, a reference point. Okay. Okay? There are seven medicines. Serenity medicine, story medicine, mind medicine, lifestyle medicine, alternative medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, and surgical medicine. You don't want to do surgical medicine, ideally. You don't want to do pharmaceutical medicine, ideally. So let's look at the other five medicines. And what I suggest and envision is that you say to yourself, what aspect of serenity medicine is going to be the most useful for me right now? Will it be meditation? Will it be taking time alone? Will it be having a couple of days of silence? Will it be not working on my electronic device for a certain amount of time? There's many, many ways to engage in serenity medicine. One of my favorite serenity medicine stories comes from a woman that I met briefly, and she said, you know, I wasn't feeling well. I went to the doctor. They did all these tests, and they said, you have cancer. It's metastasized everywhere. You're going to be dead in two weeks. She said, I went home, and I thought, who's a bad word, bad word, bad word are they to tell me that I'm going to be dead in two weeks? Bad word, bad word, bad word. I'm going to do whatever I want, and maybe I'll die sooner than two weeks. So she got in bed. She turned off all the lights, took off her clothes, got in bed, laid in bed in the dark, not eating, not doing anything, until she felt better. And she has no idea how long that was because she didn't look at any clock and she wasn't watching TV. She was just laying in the dark in her bed and when she got better, she got up. And that was 10 years ago when I had met her. Mm-hmm. That's serenity medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Serenity medicine says this is what it is and perhaps I will change it and perhaps it will change me. Story medicine. So you were looking for a story about what was going on with the tinnitus and the story that you got from, did you say it was an MRI? Yes. Was that there is a parotid tumor. And their story is that this needs to be surgically removed. And you are doing your best to craft another story, a story of I am going to remove this in some other way. The clearer you can make that story, and sometimes some of my teachers would have us write a story about ourselves five years from now in which this is no longer a problem. Okay. So that you really create a story about yourself in the future. There are many, again, there are many, many aspects to story medicine. It is a diagnosis. It is the story we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, but to take a really good look at that. I also um, urge people, if they have the means, to seek out a real second opinion. What would an acupuncturist say about what's going on? Okay. What would a, what would somebody who does cranial sacral work say about it? You may not want to go with the story that they tell you, but you may find some people that you want to help you on your healing journey, even if you don't go with their story. 
Okay. But I find it very important to break into the story that modern medicine gives because the story that modern modern medicine gives is such a self-reflective story that it's hard for modern medicine to believe that there are any other stories of any kind. And then we get sucked into that as though if we're not following their story, well, then we're just idiots because there are no other stories. But that's certainly not true. There's tons of other stories. Mind medicine is certainly what we think about it, but it also encompasses faith medicine and placebo medicine and what I call arts medicine. And what we're doing in mind medicine is to actually harness the power of our own thoughts. The body reacts to what we believe. That is not to say that if we truly believe that we don't have cancer, that we don't have cancer. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't work on that simple a level. It's a little more complex than that. But this is where we get into affirmation and trance work. This is where we get into homeopathy and Reiki. And there are as many healing techniques in mind medicine as um, there are ways to imagine. It's the shaman's playground. One of the dangers to mind medicine is that there are so many different mind medicine techniques that it is easy to get bogged down with acupuncture and energy healing and a rife machine and um, a gemstone elixir and this and that and the other thing. And those are all mind medicine. Mm-hmm. That's not playing the field. That is not using a bunch of different things. That's using the same thing in different ways. That's like saying I have pink salt and gray salt and white salt. Mm -hmm. They're all salt. (laughs) So it's important not to um, get sucked into mind medicine and just do uh, this mind medicine and then that mind medicine and then that mind medicine. woman that I knew fairly well who was an herbalist um, was having real digestive problems and for you know quite a long time and the herbalist that she was working with finally said to her you know none of the herbs that I'm giving you for your digestive problem are helping at all there's something really deeply wrong and so this person went to South America and she consulted a shaman there who said she had offended a spirit and that she had to make reparations to the spirit and she had to come back and she had to get all this stuff Meanwhile, when she was back here, she was feeling so bad that somebody convinced her to go to a doctor who wound up diagnosing her with liver cancer. Oh. So it's important not to go herring off on a strange story from mind medicine, mm-hmm. okay. but to keep a firm grip on... What else could be going on? This is one of the reasons why we set time limits. And I'm always leery of somebody in mind medicine says, oh, you know, this caused this, or you're doing that caused that. What I'm more interested in is every day and every way you are getting better and better. That's mind medicine. Lifestyle medicine. Wow. Lifestyle medicine is about what we make ourselves of, and how we function. 
It's about food and exercise. And certainly there are enough crazy diets out there to make anybody crazy. (laughs) Guilty. Which is the last thing that we should feel about our food is guilty. So a a healthy diet is a diet that is broad, that includes a lot of different foods. A healthy diet is a diet that includes all of the major things that human beings eat. Fruits, plants, grains, meats, milks, eggs, fish, mushrooms, seaweed. Any one of these things absent from the diet is going to almost cause problems. So when you said guilty, what did you mean? Well, in these three and a half years, I've been had every different diet trying to, you know, diagnose myself, so... You know, currently this, now. <laughs> this, this is another place where people go amok. Oh, and I've been amok. Yeah. Because the diet hasn't done anything, changing your diet hasn't done anything at all, has it? Nope. Just made me, you know, made me more um, restricted and limited. Exactly. And that's not healing. So what I like is for people to eat a broad diet of whole foods sourced as locally as they can, organic if they can afford it, but including gifts of the animals, gifts of the ocean, gifts of the plants, gifts of the forest floor. Nice. You don't have to be an ugly American to eat meat. But you want to heal, you really need some meat. <laughs> yes. And milk. The love of the mother for you. And if you don't want to drink milk, and I bring, you know, close to a gallon of milk into my house every day, and I hardly drink it at all, but I eat a lot of yogurt and cheese. Okay. And that counts. It doesn't have to be fluid milk. Yogurt and cheese are just fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, growth would be actually pretty easy to deal with if they were old, stuck stuff. In fact, they're the opposite. They're the youngest, healthiest cells in the body. And that's why they're so difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why changing your diet won't affect it. I'm not exactly sure why it is, but it's pretty obvious that if there's a growth in the body, that growth is going to get the nutrition before your other cells do. And so when you disturb your nutrition, the tumor continues to eat, but your immune system doesn't. Oh, that makes sense. So we've had serenity medicine, story medicine, mind medicine, and lifestyle medicine, and then there's a gap. And the gap is to remind us that those first four medicines build health. They're foundational medicines. And then what's on the other side of the gap, alternative medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, and deep medicine, will always injure our health. 
So any alternative medicine that you decide to pursue could help you, but it will also, because it's on the far side of the gap, be a possible vector of harm for you as well. Mm -hmm. Um, in a variety of ways, either by story or by, um, you know, being given things that you're being told to take, which um, you don't check out and wind up not being good for you. So it's probably also worth mentioning here that any of these healing modalities and techniques that I'm talking about can be offered by people who think in the scientific tradition, which is it has to be measurable, or people who are thinking in the heroic tradition, which also has a lot to do with the humoral uh, theory and the idea that to get someone better, we have to puke them, uh, poke them, and uh, give them a cathartic. So we want them spewing out of all ends. (laughs) And the wise woman tradition which seeks to nourish health, wholeness, and holiness. And so you can find practitioners, say an acupuncturist or an herbalist, in any of these three traditions. And so it helps to know a little bit about them and to, while you're looking for a helper for your health, to decide what tradition do you want that helper to be in. And it won't necessarily be that they will say, oh, I'm in this tradition, but you will be able Mm -hmm. to recognize it from the things they say and how they operate. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. And I also want to remind everybody that I have a video course at wisewomanschool.com called A Cancer Diagnosis, Help Yourself the Wise Woman Way. And it goes into a lot of detail about specific herbs that have been used in a variety of cultures to eliminate cancers. I'll look into that. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. Thank you for sharing so much information. And as you were talking about um, answering that email question, I would really appreciate if you can explain to me because I, I don't fully understand what is endometriosis. I have that and it's very painful. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some options that I tried and what I could try, but can you physically or anatomically explain to me what happens? Like what, why? You know, so you we talked about, about the endometrium, yeah. which is the inner lining of the uterus. Right. For reasons that we do not understand, endometrial tissue can grow in places that are not the inside of the uterus. And when it grows in other places, it responds to the same hormonal signals. So now you have some endometrium getting all filled up with blood stuck on your intestines. And that doesn't feel good are stuck on the outside of your bladder, and that does not feel good because that tissue is growing with the hormonal messages, and then it is shedding that blood from hormonal messages, but it doesn't have an outside exit for that blood, so it just kind of bleeds into the body. The body can take care of it, but it's painful. I don't have to tell you that. Right. (laughs) 
And depending on how yeah. m- much endometrial tissue is in places outside the uterus, there may be more or less pain, and also depending on where that is. And we do not have a really good idea about that, but we do know that if we put a chlorine beach tampon in a mouse's vagina, that there's a very, very high possibility that that mouse will get endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And I am glad to see that there are a lot of organic cotton tampons out there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't use any of those. And bleach and, you know, mm-hmm. so hurrah for that. And changing that, of course, once you have endometriosis, is not necessarily going to change anything. Because mm-hmm. it is hormonally signaled, it will go away after menopause. Right. So if the pain is not too terrible, and if it doesn't cause, you know, any major problems, some women elect to wait it out, depending on where they are and how soon they think they will be able to get to menopause. Um, other w- women um, use drugs that help mm-hmm. shrink that tissue. Birth control pills are a reasonable choice. Birth control pills basically stop the endometrium from growing. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't build up with blood. So birth control pills can often basically just turn off the problem of endometriosis. You said mm-hmm. you had some things that you were thinking about doing. I'm curious as to what those are. Yeah, so um, I was I tried for a few months uh, using Don Quai and Astragalus. And the first two cycles I did that for, I actually saw improvement. But last week, I was just like literally felt like I was exploding of pain. I didn't know where to put myself. And I was so happy to hear this evening when you mentioned sometimes you need to give yourself like that break of pain. So I took Motrin, which just calmed me down that I could just think a little bit. And I've been using Mother War. I haven't seen really any difference with the pain, but I wanted to ask you, I've heard you talk about herbs such as California poppy and um, kava kava, and I don't know if it's even helpful for this, like if it's something I should even um, entertain that idea, and I wanted your, you know, advice, like what it does and if it's something that would be something to consider. California poppy is in the poppy family, and it's the only poppy that I know of that is non-addictive. Okay. So it has the same kind of qualities that poppy does, which is it can um, push back against pain. Okay. It it often has to be taken in larger quantities than the other poppies because it has different alkaloids and it's not going to work the way, say, morphine would. Some people like to take it when they're going to sleep because they find that it improves their sleep. Other people say, no, I'm fine with it at any time during the day. Many times what's important in dealing with pain is, like you said, to take that Motrin and get your your head going better, Um, but also to 
have one or two things that help to relieve the pain, if not three or four, and to take one of those as frequently as you need to, so if that's every half hour, make it available mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. You so you might say, okay, well, you know, I've been using this, and I've been getting fairly good results with it, but I've only been taking it once or twice a day. What would happen if I took it every half hour but took a small mm-hmm. dose? Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't, I, I didn't think of that. Maybe I would consider that with a dong quai, taking it more often. Mm-hmm. And okay. so you were taking the dong quai for its hormonal effects? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would be a little su- surprised um, that it would... have a beneficial effect so quickly. Mhm. What form are you taking it in? Um, I did infusion. I got the the dried. I did like one ounce of mm-hmm. dried um you know, Don Kwai and drank mm-hmm. it. Let I, me ask you this, does Don Kwai yeah. have a smell? Um a strong smell? Thing? I think, yeah. I mean, I Definitely mix it does. with we a never infusion of any herb but the strong smell. Oh, not to. Okay. Never, 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 never make an infusion mm-hmm. of an herb with a strong smell. Okay. I didn't know that. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay. In Chinese medicine, donghui is never used by itself. Mm-hmm. It's considered incredibly dangerous to use by itself. Mm-hmm. It's always used in conjunction with other herbs like peony root, licorice root, things that can moderate the heat of that. Um, Three months of daily doses of 10 to 20 drops of tincture of dong kwai taken in combination with white peony or astragalus can relieve endometriosis pain as well as drugs. Okay, that's great. But that's see, three that's three months, that's what I'm saying. I've right. never heard of it affecting people that quickly. Maybe it did mm-hmm. because you were taking an infusion, very, very strong, and a lot of it perhaps. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm reading from down there. Okay. All right. Naturopaths and other herbalists favor combinations of herbs like Vitex, Motherwort, Poke, and Dandelion to reverse endometriosis, and there's a recipe on page 372. Acupuncture can reduce the pain of endometriosis for most women and cures some women. Castor oil packs, popularized by Edgar Cayce, soothe pain and may reduce the extent of endometriosis. There's a recipe for how to make it. Okay, I'm definitely going to um, look into some of those options. Um, would it, like, I could try California poppy, like, um, that would be a possibility? Yes. For the pain part? For the pain part, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. And um, what is the herb kava kava, I guess, the characteristics? Like, what is it? It's um, usually for? used. To relieve muscle spasms. Okay. 
So I'm not sure that it would be a good choice here. Okay. And it's kava kava root. Kava kava root. Okay, thanks. So even if I'm, like I'm saying, the, the cramping part, maybe that's what I was thinking of it. I don't remember why. I just wrote down, like, questions for myself to ask you after hearing you mm-hmm. talk about something. But the I cramping is not coming from your uterus. It's coming from where the endometrial tissue is tissue. outside okay. Okay. your uterus. Oh, uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. If it was just in your uterus, then sure. And, you know, ginger, any kind of anti-cramp herb would help. Mm-hmm. But it's not in your uterus. Yes, it's in your uterus. There's endometrial tissue in your uterus. But right. you have endometriosis because you also have endometrial tissue outside your uterus. I see what you're saying now. Okay. I was confusing. I think I was just like lumping them together, you know, like sometimes I can't even differentiate where the pain is coming from. It's just you feel like it's like overtaking you. Yes. It's it's very it's a very diffuse pain. Mm -hmm. And it can be difficult to find your way around. So I encourage you to just keep trying various things until you find the things in that work for you and whatever doses work for you. Okay. Okay? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for the right. support. Doctors, doctors call endometriosis the chameleon disease of the pelvis. Oh, wow. Right? Mm-hmm. And Thank again, you. the ultimate cure is menopause. <laughs> Thank you. All righty. Green blessings. Thank you. All right. Remind the callers to press one if anybody has a question. We'll go to another email question. All right. All right. The, it says hi. The new introduction okay. play. I didn't get here early enough to hear the whole thing. I just heard the the end of it. Did the new introduction play? I did not see it loaded on there actually. So. So it was the regular one. Up, it was she the regular did. one. Yeah. She did. Yeah, we redid it, and I uh, she uploaded it. I thought. I saw her go to the site and upload it. Okay, well, she did not email me. It will sound that, so maybe, the same. Uh, because what we did was we went in and we edited it. So it starts the oh, same really? and it ends. Yes, it starts the same and it ends the same, but there's different things in it. Oh, I didn't notice. I, um, it and I got here too late to, to notice. Mm-hmm. There were just a few there things we had, right? Instead of saying five There are books, two introductions. That are on there, and um, maybe it was the one that I didn't push, and um, they're the same exact length. So, are they yeah, pretty not, much the same? I'm not seeing that they're different, but there is, um, okay, yeah, it does look like there's one at the bottom here that might be what she uploaded. Welcome All right. to the show with Susan. Okay, we'll try yeah. that next Okay. Okay, next week we'll try the new one. Okay. Let's go to. Okay, I'm wondering if you give herbal 
advice about conditions like colitis. I really don't want to go the traditional route of Western medicine, but also suffer tremendously when I attempt to change my diet. I have found some relief with Swedish bitters lately. In the past, I have used chaga mushrooms, had, and they have helped, but it doesn't seem to be helping now. I'd love to try anything that could help support a healthy intestinal function. Can you help? Okay, well, colitis doesn't mean that it's unhealthy. Itis means inflammation of. So anytime there's an itis, there's an inflammation. Now, sometimes that inflammation can be caused by an infection, but not always. And especially colitis is rarely caused by an infection. It is just an inflammation. The gut, which we've been focusing on a lot tonight, is pretty sensitive, and it's sensitive to hormones and it's sensitive to nerves and it's sensitive to environmental things and it's sensitive to stress and it's got a lot of nerve endings and it really lets us know about its sensitivities and some people's minds tend to focus on their gut more than others and it's pretty easy to create a really scary feedback loop of my gut hurts oh my gosh there's something wrong with my gut and the more we think that and the more we feel that, the worse it will get because the gut responds to stress and we're stressing it. So one of the things that I like to encourage people with colitis to do is to really change that pattern. Get in there with mind medicine and start thinking some other thoughts about what's going on with your gut. And one of the first thoughts is there's, it's not wrong. It's not a disease. It's just really sensitive. It's really sensitive, and it's talking to you a lot. And what are you telling it? Are you telling it, shut up? Are you telling it, go away? Are you telling it, I don't want to hear what you have to say? That could be a problem, right? Or are you trying to figure out what it is telling you not to eat? It's hardly ever telling you not to eat things. Again, what I find is a healthy diet is a broad diet of whole foods, well-cooked and well-prepared uh, with the gifts from all of the places available to us. So it's important to have meat in your diet. It's important to have milk in the diet. It's important to have eggs in the diet, cheese, vegetables, well-cooked, fruits cooked, grains, all of those things. Anytime there's a diet that says not eating this and it's a whole food, there's a problem. If somebody says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat a diet in which I'm not going to eat any refined carbohydrates, I say, go for it. Great choice. All right. I'm going to have a diet in which I do not eat um, sugary drinks. Go for it. Great idea. Whether they're fruit juice or soda pop, sugary drinks really capsize your diet. So I'm not saying that there aren't things that we couldn't say, I'm not going to eat this. But those things that we're saying, I'm not going to eat, they should be processed. They shouldn't be whole foods. If anything we say we're not going to eat as a whole food, then we're probably messing ourselves up. With colitis, we can pretty easily start to demonize foods. And we demonize foods that have been demonized by the culture generally. And uh, one of the reasons it's easy to demonize foods is because there are various reaction times. When we first put some food in our mouth, we might actually have a gut reaction to that because there are immune cells in the gut. And there might be a reaction, but it's rare that that's going to happen. Generally, when we put food in our mouth, the signals are going to the liver and the gallbladder and the pancreas and the stomach and not down into the gut, especially not into the colon at all. 
a healthy transit time from entrance at the mouth to exit at the toilet bowl is 24 to 36 hours faster than that, and you're not getting nutrient uptake. Slower than that, mm, there may not be enough energy in your food, and your body's working hard to extract that energy. But again, as I said earlier, diarrhea is a killer. It's one of the major killers on this planet, whereas constipation never killed anybody. So if you go into the bathroom too often, that's a problem. If you're not going as frequently as you'd like to go, I understand it can be a problem for you, but it's not health-wise a real problem at all. When there is colitis, when there's inflammation in the colon, one of the things that I like to think of right away is slippery elm. And if not slippery elm, or for some reason you don't like slippery elm, then marshmallow root infusion. You can find YouTubes of me making slippery elm balls, which can be dissolved in the mouth and and, uh, allowed to uh, trickle down into the digestive system. I know a cohort of people with Crohn's disease who use slippery elm and felt that it began their healing process on their Crohn's disease. People with ulcerative colitis who use slippery elm and felt that it very much triggered a healing process that was able to get them out of their cycle of pain and distress. Marshmallow was favored by Dr. Christopher and um, it has become one of my favorites over the past year. It's just so soothing and has such a bland taste and so, so easy. So if you're Having an itis, especially a colitis, a marshmallow root infusion would be a good infusion to add to your infusion so that instead of five, you have six different infusions. Or the other thing you can do is just circulate through those five infusions and have a quart of marshmallow in the refrigerator and drink a cup or so of that a day in addition to your other nourishing herbal infusion. I think those are the most important points is um, see what you can do to change your attitude about what's going on. And I'm not picking on you personally because I don't even really know you. I'm talking general here. So maybe you have the, the world's best attitude and I'm totally off the mark here. I don't know. But kind of from your letter, it didn't sound like it sounds like, you know, disease process and so on, which I don't think is actually going on. I think it's inflammation. And um, get some soothers in there. Get some really soothing things, and what can you do to improve your diet? How much seaweed is in your diet? Seaweed is a real healer to the gut. If you're not eating seaweed regularly, see about getting some more seaweed into your diet. Hope this helps. Green blessings. All right. Well, it looks like uh, Ariella is here, so do you want to go ahead and start the interview just a couple minutes early? I think that's a wonderful idea. Let's go for it. All right. Excellent. Shaman Ariella Moon is an ordained reverend, priestess of Avalon, holding center with the goddess temple of Palm Springs. She is also an initiated Wiccan priestess, Reiki master, and a path of light level four shaman master healer. Ariella has co-led rituals inside Stonehenge, Salisbury, England, and at the Callanish Stones on the Isle of Lewis, Scotland. 
Her shaman work has been featured in a short promotional film for British Airways and Visit California and on television. Ariella calls upon her experiences with magic and healing when writing her two fiction book series, The Teen Witch, I guess that's how you pronounce it, W-Y-T-C-H-E, Witch, okay, I guess so, Saga and the Two Realms. Ariella was awarded the 2018 Reader's Choice Award for her short story, Covert Hearts. Her nonfiction writing credits include Crone Magazine. Welcome to the show, Ariella. Well, hi. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Nice. Nice to talk to you again. We didn't um, get to spend very much time together at the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference a month or so ago. I know. We just kept passing each other on the path. It was very. I know. We um, kept passing each other and twinkling <laughs> at each other. I know, there were like two ships passing all the time. <laughs> but it's good, to, it's good to kind of see you again. I feel like I'm seeing you again. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, you have two really strong paths in your life, the path of the shaman and the path of the writer. Can you talk about riding both of those horses? Well, it's um, actually easier than you would think. Uh, The shaman work, the magic, really helps to inform the writing because I write uh, magical young adult fiction. So I take what happens to me, my experiences as a shaman, and I thread them into my stories. And uh, one example would be the book Spell for Sophia. In that book, I uh, took my experiences with ghosts, and my, which I've encountered several during uh, doing house clearings and business clearings, and also my experiences with a walk-in, which you probably know is a, a soul that has voluntarily left its body and allowed another soul to walk in. So I've had a very uh, uneasy encounter with a walk-in. So that made it very easy to write about one in Spell for Sophia. So the two um, two careers go really well together, the two paths. The only problem is finding time for both. I've been petitioning for a 26-hour day for quite a long time, and they said I could have it <laughs> if I go for a six-day week. Yeah, and then we just have to be able to stay up that long, though. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> or stay at the computer that long. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, you know, it kind of goes along with when people move to the country, because I do live out in the country, and they say, what's the best job here? And I look at them and I say, you're never going to survive in the country with one job. You need five. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you're a writer, so you know that can be very time-consuming. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I write and design my books as well. So there's a huge amount of time and draw up the indexes for them. And I, you know, I really lavish attention on my books. Um, You also moved out of the San Francisco Bay Area to the country, to the California desert a couple of years ago. Do you have anything to say about that? Was that easy? Was it difficult? (laughs) Well, I was at a writer's conference uh, here in, in the desert one time, and the the speaker was giving a talk on setting and said, oh, I'm sure you all move to the desert because you love it. If you love it, raise your hand. And I was the only one who didn't raise her hand. 
And um, <laughs> so, but, you know, earlier you were talking about serenity medicine, and that was really about one of the hard things for me in the move is that I no longer had the ocean or the forest. And um, the desert just seems like a very hostile environment. It seemed like it was out to get me. Mm-hmm. The uh, the plants, they all have spines or needles on them, and there's very vicious, very extremely tiny ants that will swarm your bare feet and just, you know, like start biting you like a tiger. And um, it was just awful. And in the summer, it can get to 123 degrees, which um, – it's good for writing because you don't want to leave your house. So <laughs> the first summer I was here, I because I never left my study except to walk the dog. Well, actually, carry the dog out to the grass and go quickly before the ants could swarm us and bite us. So um, yeah, but now when I go back to the San Francisco area, I love the green and I love the the water, but I feel like it's very um, busy. You're breaking up. Can you hear but, me? Yes. So it's like the desert creates a retreat setting for you. Yes, it does. And um, so I guess that it helps the writing part. And it took me two years um, to adjust to the different energies of the desert. I would see coyotes almost every day. Um, and, of course, those are that, that trickster um, energy. And there was a coyote ghost that kept tormenting my dog at night. I would wake up to hear my dog crying in her sleep and look out, look over onto the floor where her bed was, and I would see this coyote ghost, like, attacking her, trying to eat her. So we had to do a little bit of banishing work around the house to get rid of the coyote spirit. And um, so, yeah, it was just to understand what the energy is here and and befriending the spirits of this land. Yes. Yes, I think about the the many stories about um bones that are associated yeah. with spirit. Right, and the well, shaman women getting the bones, bringing the bones and bringing the spirits back to yeah. the Right, so yes, many well, in, this case, it in that like, in that desert area. Yes, well, and this is there's a lot of tribal land here, so I don't think that they always uh, did a good job of putting houses where there were no spirits. So um, I've, I've I've become friends with the spirits of this land. We're living in harmony now, and um, we have huge mountains. And there's so much energy that comes flying off of those mountains. And there's water um, and aquifers way under the land. So that was the hardest part for me. I wasn't, you know, I was trying to find my muse because my muse didn't actually come with me. or I didn't think it did. And um, it took me a while because I kept thinking, oh, the, the muse must be earth. It must be these giant mountains. And then when I finally realized that it was the water flowing beneath me, that was what was carrying the ideas. That was where the muse was. Then I set up an altar for water. And that's when things turned around quite a bit. <laughs> Did you set up that altar in your house or out in nature? Um, I have it in my house. I still don't go out in nature any more than I have to. Um, 
So, yes, I actually have it uh, in the West because West represents water, and I have it in my study. So it's right there, and I, you know, try to make sure I pay attention to it and keep it clean because dust flies in everywhere. You know, we have strong winds in the desert, and they carry a lot of uh, dust. So um, that was another thing to get used to since I'm allergic to dust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that you know, about, about six or seven years ago, I was at, uh, I don't even remember where I was, and there was an old lover of mine. I said, oh, golly, Rosemary, what are you doing here? What's going on? And she said, well, you know, when, when we were lovers, I lived in Florida, she said, but then I kept getting, like, lung problems. And oh. I was it was recommended to me that I should move to the desert. Because yep. of my lung problems. So she moved to the desert southwest, I think New Mexico. And um, she chose an area to live in where there was uranium dust. Oh, gosh. Oh. And she didn't realize. I mean, nobody told her, right? Yeah. And when I saw her, they were getting ready, uh, readying her for a heart transplant because she'd had heart attack after heart attack from the uranium oh. dust because of the weakened state of her lungs. Oh my God! No, she did not. Sur- she did not survive the uh, the setup for doing the transplant. She she died during the setup. Oh, that's terrible! I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was it was you know quite the story of I'm moving to the to the desert for my health and it destroyed her. Well, and this. Well, so when you talk about that dust, that's of course the first thing that I think about is that a lot of that dust in the in those deserts oh, is is toxic. Yeah, really, really bad dust. Yeah, well, in um, I live in Riverside County, and it's got one of the, I think it's like a G or an F rating for air quality. And part of that is because we have um, these big winds that come through. I mean, there's Palm Springs is pretty much on a couple of sides surrounded by windmills, farms, wind farms. And um, <clears throat> so you can see the wind going, and you just know it's carrying really bad stuff. Mm. So I try not to uh, go out. You stay indoors. I do. And I hate being a recluse because I grew up near the ocean. I grew up near the forest. I miss the redwoods. But, um, you know, you can make peace with wherever you are. So that's what I've been working on. So one of the things that happened when you moved was that suddenly British Airways Wanted you to make a film. Is this about being a shaman on an airplane? Tell us about this. No, it was so interesting. I I didn't even believe it at first when I got when they contacted me. It was a joint effort between British Airways and Visit California, and they were doing a promo um, for all the great things that you can do in Southern California. And so Anna Friel, who is an award-winning British actress, is the star of this little promo, and uh, they wanted to have some spiritual aspects to it. So they hired me to do to lead um, Anna and her friend in a um, excuse me a shamanic journey in uh, this beautiful desert labyrinth at the Mental Physical, uh, Metaphysics Institute at Joshua Tree. And so we did that. It was, it was so much fun. Everybody, I was afraid they all, they would think, oh, she's so woo-woo, you know, and they wouldn't treat me well. But they treated me with tremendous respect, and they were so nice. And uh, the 
the crew kept wanting me to, you know, taking me aside and wanting me to tell them, you know, do I have a spirit animal? Can you tell me who my spirit animal is? And so I was doing testing on all of them. And we had a great shoot with drones and cameras and the wind stayed down. And as we were finishing, the sky was turning completely orange as the sun was setting. And we wrapped and I looked up from Anna and her friend and the labyrinth and all of a sudden we heard this yip, 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 and we were surrounded by coyotes. <laughs> they had been totally silent during the shoot, but they had been watching us. So that was a very shamanic moment that didn't end up in the final film, but I was. Yes, but you had the, the joy of doing it. I did. It was wonderful. They were all so nice. And now I've got this little tiny, you know, this little film clip, and they did a wonderful job of editing because, you know, you always worry how are they going to portray you, but they, I think they portrayed me as better than I am, so I'm very grateful to them. <laughs> Marvelous. They were wonderful. That's great. Uh, you're also a ritualist, yes? Yes. Um, I, in fact, my favorite rituals to do are life passages rituals and um, though I do love the rituals that I did in Stonehenge and in the Kalanish stones because those were really amazing but um, here I'm the rituals that I'm uh, most often hired to do are from people who are coming from maybe out of state or out of town who are coming for some special occasion to the desert and they are looking for a shaman who will create a, a ritual for them so um, one of my favorites is for bridesmaids. And this just came up a couple years ago where I was contacted by a bride-to-be. And she wanted to have a ritual that would honor her longtime friendship with her girlfriends and how they felt that was probably going to change a little bit with her getting married. So we had this beautiful um, ceremony, this ritual with these women and um, and then that led to, in September, I did another ritual for a group of bridesmaids from out of town. And they were so cute because they were much younger than the first group. And I showed up, and the maid of honor who had arranged for the ritual met me um, outside the house. She'd been watching for me, I think. And as I exited my car, I had my shaman bag, and it's like overflowing with my herbs and my, you know, my shaman rattle and all this paraphernalia. And she took one look at me, and she said, um, she said, oh, we were hoping you were going to show up like Mary Poppins with a bag full of magic, and here you are. So I'm just glad I didn't disappoint. <laughs> they were cute. Mary Poppins, the British, yes. and yes. <laughs> yes. Of course, the second thing they said is, wow, you are so tiny. So. <laughs> yeah, that was good. So actually, on uh, Thursday, I've, I've designed a ritual for some people coming out of town. I guess these people, this couple had had um, a shamanic journey right before they got married and now she's pregnant so they want enough they want a shamanic journey uh to honor this life passage into becoming parents so i'm really looking forward to meeting them and uh, doing that ritual 
Oh, yes. How marvelous. Yeah, that'd be cool, I think. Yeah. Was it easy for you to become a shaman? Um, well, it's it's not a path that it's like trying to find a coven, you know? It's not easy to find. And I was very fortunate that um, a hereditary shaman from El Salvador had decided to go ahead and take on a couple, a few people to teach them um, the, the shamanic path. And at the time, I had just finished my level one uh, training in Wicca and was working on my lessons for the next level when this opportunity arose. And I was very fortunate that my high priestess, I uh, went to her and said, I'm not going to be able to do both at the same time, but I just started this new level with you. And she said, you know, you really are a shaman. So, I, you know, that's, I think, where your heart is. You'll never get this opportunity again. So go for it. <laughs> so I did. And um, it was it was really wonderful. There was some scary parts because shamans have to, uh, part of your training is to what they call die the little death. And that was not fun to, you know, to go to that place of darkness. Um, and then but the hardest part for me was, um, and I thought I was going to completely fail and flunk out, is that I could not find my shaman's voice. And um, the shaman's voice is what you use if you have to go into the void to find a shattered soul or if you have to uh, blast a demon and get them to leave. Or, you know, there's so many different ways that you need the shaman's voice, and I just couldn't find mine. (laughs) And then I was in England um, with Mara Freeman, who's a Welsh Druid, and... um, she invited me, she, we were part of a tour group that she was leading, and she invited me to be part of a ritual inside Stonehenge. It was after hours, we were allowed in. They had guards surrounding Stonehenge to make sure we didn't, I don't know, burn it down or something. And um, I was given the, the words for this wonderful druid um, ritual. And so it was my turn to speak, and I turned. I was supposed to invoke the South. And when I turned and started to speak the Druid words, all of a sudden my throat just started reverberating like crazy. And this voice came out that I think reached all the way back to California. And I said the words, but I was the whole time I was saying her words, my uh, brain was going, oh, my gosh, who, who's speaking? Who is this? Mm. And um, that's how I found my shaman voice was inside Stonehenge. So, and that wow. Was, say, that was about eight months after I finished the training. She let me, um, at one point, my shaman, the hereditary shaman that taught me, said, well, maybe your shaman's voice is silent. And I said, I know that's not right. I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> so I never expected to find it inside Stonehenge in the private ritual. That was like amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the kind of thing where you wish those British Airlines people had been there filming because I would love to have seen the look on my face. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, when that voice came out. <laughs> Who is that? Wow. So, yeah, and you haven't been able to shut me up since. So, um, One of the topics that's come up tonight on the show has been chakras, and I know you do some work with chakras. Do you want to tell us? Yes. Some- 
about what you do with chakras and anything you have to say about that, then I think it oh. would be great. Yes. Well, I, I actually, for the Goddess Spirit Rising, I proposed two different workshops, and one was chakra healing, because I'm so, um, I find them to be such an amazing diagnostic tool for me. So whenever I take on a new shaman client who's not there for a ritual, but somebody who wants healing or, um, you know, something like that, I always recommend that we start with the chakra healing. Because for me, being, you know, the combination of a Reiki master and a shaman, when I go into the chakras, I first do a test to see are they open or closed? Are they turning the right way or the wrong way? You know, these vortexes need to be, open just the right amount and they need to not be bringing in toxic energy. And so when I, when I use the pendulum to do that, and then if I find that a particular chakra is closed or going the wrong direction, I'll go in and correct it. And I always have the psychic um, shamans, you know, switch on when I do that. And, you know, shamans I think are successful because we work in, non-ordinary reality and so I go into the chakras I start getting um, pictures I get visions and that opens up a dialogue with the client so I can say to them why am I seeing ballerinas twirling on a stage and they'll say oh well that was my dream but I had an injury and I couldn't I had to give it up and then there's usually a connection between whatever vision I see and whatever health issue they're having in the moment. And sometimes it's an early childhood trauma that I'm seeing. Sometimes it's even a past life trauma or wound that I'm seeing. So um, it's really amazing tool. And um, so that's why I always start with the chakra healing. And what is a chakra healing? Do you like you're talking about chakras turning a certain way and being opened or closed? So once you determine that, do you then go in and turn them the right way and open them if they're closed or close them if they're open? Yeah. So like the first thing I'll do if they're closed is I have to, you know, a chakra should be um, spinning in a clockwise fashion, and if it's wide, wide, wide open, that you'll usually find in empaths or Tantra um, followers because they're very open, and that makes them very vulnerable. So um, if they're wide open and the person seems happy and healthy, I will leave it. But if they're going in a counterclockwise um, spin, then that means like for your the chakras in your feet, if those are going the wrong direction, then that means you're bringing up toxic energy from the earth instead of healing energy from the earth. So I would go in and deliberately go counterclockwise with the pendulum to pull out any toxic energies. And then I keep going and keep going and I send those energies deep into the earth to burn, transform and purify. And then you end up with a chakra that's been cleansed, but is wide open, which could lead it, lead it to um, being harmed. So I go in with Reiki and heal it and fill in all the places where there had been dark energy with um, healing energy. And then I test it again with the pendulum to see if it's turning in the correct direction. So you never leave somebody like wide open or going the wrong direction. You 
you have to correct it and heal it and remove any crystallized energies. And the crystallized energies are usually very deep wounds from childhood or something from the past, you know, from like a past life. I assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> that you're talking about the front entrances to the chakras, not the back entrances. Well, I let people know that there are front and back to each chakra. And I have them laying on, on their backs when I'm working on them, but we are envisioning, I mean, I'm working from the front, but I'm envisioning the entire chakra being cleared and cleansed. So I'm doing it clockwise from the front, but I'm also um, envisioning that the whole thing is clean, even if I'm not, you know, I don't flip them over and do the back. Because I see the healing as going straight through them, right, through that chakra, as that, you know, it's like a funnel in the front and a funnel in the back. So I see it going straight through. In my work, my understanding is that the front chakras, um, the openings at the fronts of the chakras are um, pretty much individually controllable. That once you tell somebody that chakras can be opened and closed and give them a few practice sessions, they can do that themselves, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on their intentions and their focus on it, but that the back chakras are not available to conscious intervention, either by a healer or by the person. So certainly one can send energy through them, but they are not really available. This is why we use psychoactive plants. It's the psychoactive plants that can change the back chakra settings. And those back chakra settings have a lot to do with um, our personality and how we present ourselves to the world. So true. Um, I find that part of the work of doing with the chakras is just raising awareness to people that they're there and, um, you know, so that they can be educated so that they, I think making them aware of it helps them to self-control. But I think, I think it's very interesting um, about the back chakras. Yeah, they say that the back chakras are locked down at birth. And have a lot to do with the circumstances of your birth and that only psychedelic plants or a shaman, a shamanic intervention, can um, open the back chakras. And that what a lot of people think of as a bad trip is getting into those back chakras and changing the setting and then not knowing how to proceed from there. Mm. Well, you know, I haven't had that many incidences where I've had to deal from the back. And when I have, I've had the person sit up and it's usually in like a um, an open chair, with like a um, like a lot of dining room chairs are kind of have slats or something so that I feel like I can get through. Um, and that's often when, when you find psychic wounds as a shaman or wounds that are from an, a past life. Like I've been able to visualize and feel the crystallized energy of, from a spear wound. I can still feel the spear in it, in the person. Mm-hmm. And that's usually from the back, you know, where they've gotten struck. So, right. um, so yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, you that's part of that, it's like those spidey senses, you know, you have to go in and try to figure out where, where, what is the origin of um, the problem. And sometimes you have to, change you know you can't have them laying on their back you have to have them sitting up in a whole different environment to do it 
I suspect that you get the same kind of question that I get, which is, well, tell us what it is to be a witch. Oh. As though somehow one person's individual path um, illuminates everybody's. And my usual answer is there's as many different kinds of witches as there are different kinds of Christians. Yes. And isn't that true? I have a um, a friend who, well, the, more, the question I get is, you know, are you a witch? And then the response is, uh, that depends. What, what is your definition of a witch? Because most people have a very um, negative, you know, they've been well-trained um, by the Christians or, what, or whomever, um, what a witch is. They're not seeing them as the wise women or, you know, the, um, the women from the past who had the, the healing knowledge and, the, and those, you know, those sort of powers. So, and I have found that um, there, there's tremendous difference, as you said. There's so many different kinds of witches. And I know that I have a good friend who is, I think she said, a seventh or eighth generation hereditary witch. And her craft is very different from mine, which is Wicca. And she doesn't have the threefold law that Wiccans are held to. And she works with the spirits of the land that um, has been passed down through generation after generation through her family. And she works with not just the spirits, but she has a whole set of deities that I've never even heard of before. So, you know, that's just one difference, you know, one one separate path. And there's so many. If you're going to well, have say so the, the law of three is kind of like the speed of light. How so? We're all held to it because we live in the universe with light, and the speed of light is a constant. And there's nothing I can do to change it, and there's nothing you can do to change it. And so far as my understanding is, is that what you put out, you're going to get back three times, and I think that's true for everybody. Well, I think it's very karmic. So I In just... fact, what I say is you only get it back three times when you're a novice. Get a little better, you get it back five times. <laughs> get a lot better, you get it back ten times. Get to the level that you're at, Ariella, you get it back a thousand times and very quickly. Well, and that's why I have to be super careful of whatever I do because, you know, you have to be um, – I've also found that light attracts dark, and that's part of why I teach Defense Against the Dark Arts is because the, the darkest go for the lightest. You know, they go for the um, – they're attracted to that kind of energy. So um, you have to learn – I was so that. hoping that we could get this, this discussion without my having to give you my, talk, my mini talk on racism. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but but that's what you're doing. You're, you're creating racism right here, Ariella. And it saddens well, the heart. Dark I is not dark. bad. The deep and nourishing dark is not bad. Yes. In well, any on, light into... and dark, day and night, they go around and around with each other. You have positive electricity and negative electricity, and you have to have both of them or you get no light. So... Let's oh, I stop demonizing dark people. Let's stop demonizing the dark. Let's find a different word for what you're talking about because I do not like hearing the dark put down to me. The dark is precious, and it's a precious part of my being a woman. 
Well, like right now, we're entering the dark times. You know, we're going into the... We're not just entering... Excuse me, we entered the dark time at summer solstice. Well, you feel a lot more where you are than I feel in here, trust me. Um, what is summer solstice? Summer solstice yeah. is the day when day and night are equal. And what happens the next day? Yes. More night than day. We entered the darkness at summer solstice. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't care yes. where on the planet you are. Unless you're down under, and then you, we entered the dark. Right. You know. Yeah. But basically, it's, you know, people are really way off on it. We're we're already into winter now. The beginning of November is the beginning of winter. And the light returns at winter solstice. Yes. Well, and I think this is. We're more than halfway through the dark part of the year. Yeah, but see, here it's 90. We just don't even feel it. <laughs> Unless we're in ritual. Dark isn't you know, cold. It happens. Dark is dark. It's not cold. It's dark. Yes. Here it's dark. Dark is not yeah. bad. Dark is not negative. Dark is not cold. Dark is not hellish. Dark is not. Dark is not all of those things that our racist culture puts on it. Well, and I don't see them. Um, I see the dark as being in harmony with the light, that you need one to, you know, you need the two in balance and you can't have light without dark and you can't have dark without light. I think you need both. And if there's um, a better word, I'm sure there might be a I understand, but that's what you said five minutes ago. Five minutes ago, you said the light attracts the dark and I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm paraphrasing. Well, and, but it's also the opposite is true. That the dark, you know, that light attracts dark and dark attracts light. So I was referring to when a practitioner of certain kinds of destructive magic will come after someone who is of a, high, of a vibration of healing and they're of a vibration of destruction. So that was all I was referring to. That's what I'm saying. That's much clearer than calling it dark. Well, thank you for helping for pointing that out to me so that I could make it a little bit clearer and uh, truer to my meaning. So I thank I'm you for that. I'm so glad. I feel we are so in sympathy that way, Ariella. Oh, my gosh. I just looked at the clock and I realized, oh, our time is up. Time. Well, thank you so much for having me Much longer, Ariella. You are wonderful. And if people want to find out more, go to www.shamanariellamoon.com. Let me spell that for you. S-H-A-M-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-L-A-M-O-O-N.com shaman com for lots more stuff to learn about her fiction writing i have your beautiful bookmark right here in front of me with a great little dragonfly dingle dangle <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's right. laughs> and you can you find out about <laughs> realms which is one of her series and about the teen witch saga which is her other series and about all the things that she's doing ariella such a pleasure and a delight to spend time with you this way and next time we're at Goddess Spirit Rising we at least need to stop for a hug how about that that's right absolutely okay. <laughs> I'll be sitting around, sitting around sitting around that most of us are doing you are 
such a wonderful weaver of the healing cloak of the ancients. I so appreciate and admire what you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. And Rebecca, thank you you for supporting my work in restoring herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Green blessings to everybody and green blessings especially to you, Justine, now down in Costa Rica. Good night, everybody. Good night. Can't wait to hear the new intro next week as well. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye.